You are listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon, just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Ruth Posner to the podcast. Ruth is a remarkable woman. She has a fascinating story of survival from the Holocaust. And as you will hear, Ruth's story is a sequence of extraordinary coincidences and luck, which saw her eventually fleeing Nazi Germany and being sent to England on the kinder transport. She arrived in England aged 16, totally alone, speaking no English, and with the knowledge that all of her immediate family had perished at the hands of the Nazis. Unbelievably, and despite experiencing unimaginable trauma, Ruth somehow found the strength and determination to forge a new life in England. She went on to have an extremely successful career as a dancer and actor, and in recent years has dedicated her time to Holocaust education and awareness, culminating in being honoured with a British Empire Medal. Ruth? Thank you for coming to speak to us today. (laughs) It's an absolute honour for me to interview you for my podcast because I know how important it is for us all to hear first-hand accounts of the atrocities committed during the Holocaust. But I can imagine for you, it's not easy retelling your story time and time again. Why do you share your story? It's an interesting question because I've been thinking about it very recently Um, And I'm interested in what makes us who we are, what's humanity, and came to the conclusion that, of course, there is good and evil in humanity from its very beginning to the end. Um, What makes the Holocaust the biggest stain of humanity and as I said, I accept there, were, there, were, there was a lot of evil. And this is the biggest evil stain because it happened in a very civilized country, in a highly developed country, a country that gave us Beethoven and Schiller and Goethe, but at the same time, a country that invented special gas calculating to kill so many people per day. Now, that's why I consider this the biggest stain. And there was a time when I didn't want to talk about it, but now with a sort of insurgence of anti-Semitism, I don't only don't want to talk about it, I want to scream about it, because people my age and the last stage of their lives are not going to be here for a very long time, and I think it's everybody who has lived through it, it's almost like owes it mm. to, to the world 
to say it. Yeah. So this is how, how strongly I feel about it now. Thank you. And you were brought up in a secular Jewish household in Poland, weren't you? Yes, yes. My father called himself a humanist. Uh, he was a chartered accountant. My mother was a very busy woman with a heart of gold, a designer of and and, and uh, maker of women's underwear. So it was a very busy, busy, busy household. Um, my father also had a sort of artistic inclinations. He used to do a lot of sketches and helped me with my costumes because I was always involved in schools, plays and dances and so on. But yes, it was a secular, secular home. Um, he had two brothers who very much wanted to go to Palestine and, took he, and to take him with, and that was before the war. And he decided, no, he's going to stay. He actually was in the Polish army. He had a lot of Catholic friends. He obviously felt very Jewish, but not being religious, he had no interest in going anywhere. So the thing I really have to stress in all my, all the tragic things that have happened, I was actually blissfully lucky. I had an incredibly happy but short childhood. They were wonderful, wonderful parents. They didn't want to spoil me. Um, and I remember sometimes my father <coughs> saying, look, you didn't tidy up, this is a mess, come on, even before I was ready to go to bed, you know. And my mother used to say, oh, leave her alone. <laughs> no, I'm not going to spoil her. But at the same time, he would take me skating and stand there in Polish winter on a very cold day and watch me doing figure skating and, as I said, make costumes for me. So it was an incredibly happy childhood. And you went to a Catholic school? Well, only uh, only uh, at the very beginnings, prep school, because it was very close by. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, um, I was the only Jewish girl in the class. I didn't feel in any way ostracized. Um, the only thing, the priests used to come once a week to give religious instructions. And I was asked to, if you want to stay, you can stay, but you can also go and play, which I did. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because long time after that, and by the way, I have one, well, not, a, not only one, many faults. I cannot remember dates, <laughs> and this is to do with age. So I don't know exactly when that happened and how long. <laughs> Um, I was shocked by a girl approaching me once while I was playing. So it wasn't from the same class, but she must have known who I was, and said, you killed our Lord and you should be punished for it. And I was shocked. I was absolutely, uh, I didn't know what to say. I ran home, as I said, we, don't, we didn't live very far crying, what did I do, why did she say that, you know, and, and that was the end of my experience in the Catholic school because I was taken away <coughs> from right. it. And shortly after that, the war broke out anyway. So how long after the war broke out did things start to get difficult for your family? <coughs> 
Again, I don't remember the date exactly. I mean, war broke out in 1939. So um, I remember actually looking out of the window and seeing German soldiers marching and this terrible feeling of not knowing what was going to happen. Um, but we were still together as a family. And the first thing was, which was pretty shocking, and it must have been quite a, maybe months or so after the war broke out, there was a banging on the door, and we were confronted with two Gestapo men with machine guns saying, you have 15 minutes on the house. And I was, I remember that incredible shock. What have I done? Why? I didn't understand. And again, because we were not frightfully religious and new Catholic friends as well, I had a kind of double identity. Yes, of course I was Jewish. But I also felt Polish, and I couldn't understand that. It was a real, real shock. And one thing I still remember, how, I don't know, my mother, who could say amazing things to people sometimes because she was so in touch with her feelings and not afraid of saying it, she said to one of the guys, you wear a black uniform, but your heart can't be so black. And he hit her. And, and this, whenever I, I, I have this image in my head that she was so, her shock was that I should witness this. So that was the first experience. We had to do what we were told. And we were marched. At that time, we lived in Radom. We moved from Warsaw to Radom. And we were marched away, and on the road, there were other people picked up, other Jewish people, and we marched to the ghetto. Mm -hmm. um, now, that was also amazing shock, because it was the first time that I met very religious Jews, you know, men with payot, mm -hmm. and my brethren, whom I was not in touch with. And we were taken to a little house, dirty, horrible place, with lots of other people. We were given a, a basement room, and that was it. Not much more had been said. I don't remember how long we were there, but there were things beginning to happen which we didn't fully realize, like at night, sometimes there were noises, heraus, heraus. There were voices. People were taken out, put on trucks. We heard the trucks being driven away, and we knew something was going on, but we didn't quite realize what it was. Mm. Now, I forgot to say that my aunt came with us. Um, her husband died, and her children by that time, I think they were about six and eight, were given away to a farmer, a Polish Catholic farmer, who looked after them, and she thought it probably was the safest place. So she felt they were, they were there, but she was with us. Uh, soon after this um, 
new location where we were, my father started to think, not realizing the full atrocities yet, but he felt something needs to be done about me. And I don't know how he did it. I think it was through the help of his Catholic friends he decided I need to change my identity. And he was somehow helped in getting a, a, passport, a new passport for me and for my aunt. Uh, there was no way that my mother would have ever left him. And my aunt was ready to go and look after me, thinking her children were safely put away. And that's, that's what, what happened. I had this new name, new identity, and it was up to us to find a way of how to get away to the Aryan side. And that was very complicated. Now, my father must have had a whole plan which we thought out. God knows how long it must have taken him. But he discovered that very near Warsaw, there was um, um, a factory which was, a, well, in po obviously in Poland, but the German factory uh, creating and making um, rucksack and leather goods. And they were looking for slave laborers. Uh, laborers. And somehow it was decided for me and my aunt to go there because that means we are out of the ghetto so we were not absolutely face-to-face -face with danger and whatever imminent things could happen. We were, became slave laborers. Mm -hmm. so, so that was very strange because I was very young and, uh, and I remember dropping stitches and couldn't do what, what I was supposed to do. And sometimes I, I, was, I got screamed at or, or even hit by a German overseer, or even, sorry, what they were called Volksdeutsch. They were actually Polish people who were working for the Germans, and there were some, and they were called the Volksdeutsch, and, uh, because they could communicate, because they could speak um, Polish, of course, although I was picking up German, enough German to know. And um, so that was... Um, horrible, but I was there with my aunt. Mm -hmm. We were told what to do, and we tried to do the best. And discovery was made that once a week, because the um, hygiene conditions were terrible there, so there was nowhere to wash, and we were covered, probably had lice and dirt, and once a week the Germans would march us out of the factory to the closest... Um, uh, bathhouse and that was once a week the Germans were very conscious of hygiene <laughs> you must admit and um, so we went there twice or three times and my aunt was working out how to get away and it was a very good way because let me just, I mean, things are coming into my head. The house was on the edge 
of the Aryan side. So the house, the, the bathhouse, I mean, was in the ghetto. Right. On the other side, on the opposite side, maybe maybe 10 meters, maybe 12 meters away, was the Aryan side. My aunt worked it out and saying what we will have to do is try and cross the road. Right. Now, the crossing of the road, as she once explained to me that that's what we're going to do, it can be very dangerous because, because the guides and gendarmes were watching the way if maybe other people tried to do that and they were shot on the spot. So she said, if you stay here, we are facing certain death eventually. If we try to cross, it's a possible death and it's worth trying. And the day was decided, this once a week visit to the bathhouse, on that day she said, we're going to do it. She said, watch me and I'll find the right time to do it. And as I said, there were these guys wandering backwards and forwards. She waited until they got together, these two men got together, lit a cigarette and started chatting with one another with their backs turned away. And you know, when I say this, it all sounds like a sort of almost fantasy and I can't, I have to pinch myself to say, no, this is really what happened. And then she said, look now, now let's walk. Let's just don't run, don't run, just walk simply like you're do going for a walk somewhere. And that's what we did. We walked across the road, the, as I said, 12 meters, until we found ourselves on the Aryan side. So that was miracle, unbelievable miracle. My aunt had um, addresses of people who were friends of my father's. And as I said to you before, he had some very good Catholic friends. Mm. The Polish Catholic Church was very anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. but among them, there were many people who were also very anti-Semitic and some who were not. And that's another thing I never generalize anymore. So we were there with our new passport Entering just took your yellow bands off. We, we took our bands off, the mm -hmm. King, the Star of David, off. Uh, we came to these people who welcomed us, let us, let us stay in, in the basement. There was room for us. And here we were. My name was now Irina or Irena, and my aunt was Leonia something. And it was almost like a... a having to learn a, a character in a play, because not only did I have a, a false name, but there was a whole story behind it, like a text that you have to learn, that you know, my father was in the army and he was killed, and, uh, and this, my aunt was looking after me, and she, she lost her husband also in the army. She was the whole story, and I had to remember it like, like a text. And, uh, and actually uh, stayed with these people for a few days. And then my aunt decided maybe just to breathe more freely, we should go to the country for a few days. 
and relax because there was always a tension that somebody was going to recognize us, that somebody is going to denounce us. So let's get away. We went to the country and she found a farmer with a little hut. And again, she told him a story because it wasn't the season. So why should two people come in, into the country, you know, when it's actually not very warm? And she said she was suffering from TB and she needed fresh air. And could we stay? And fortunately, she had some money to give him. And uh, she said to me, well, do the thing, do the thing. I said, well, what do you mean? That what she meant was show what a good Catholic you are. And it was a very tiny place. The door from the kitchen where the farmer was standing was open. Uh, he could see us in our bedroom. And what she meant was kneel down and say the Lord's Prayer so that he's convinced he's got very good Catholic there. And, oh, God, <laughs> honestly, I, I wondered how, many, how, how long we stayed there. Um, we went back to Warsaw, back to the friends who were helping us, um, we were a little bit more relaxed by then. But then something else happens. As you said in your introduction, coincidences <laughs> yeah. saved my life. In 1942, a date I do remember, <laughs> the Poles, there was uprising, and the Poles rebelled in the, in the uprising trying to fight the Germans, which was ridiculous. Uh, I think the Russians were supposed to come, but they didn't. I don't know how long the whole fighting, uh, the, the fighting went on. My aunt was sort of involved in the partisan movement. And so here we were fighting the Germans as Poles. Now, I might mention that by that time, the Jewish ghetto was already finished. It was burned down. People were either killed or evacuated. So the Jewish ghetto didn't exist. This is the, the Polish uprising against the Germans. Yeah. Well, need I say, it didn't last very long. And exactly how long, I don't know. It was a fiasco. Many people got killed. And we were taken as prisoners. We were taken as Polish prisoners of war, put on the train, taken to Germany, to a place called Detmold. Of course, it was a prison. It wasn't Auschwitz. You know, there was shortage of food. There was, um, conditions were very, very minimal, but as, it wasn't like concentration camp, and we were there struggling to survive. My aunt was helping in the kitchen, uh, so that allowed her to bring a little bit of you know, more crust of bread. Um, we were there with other prisoners, and it was livable, but pretty horrible. Uh, this is the time when normally I should have been at school, but I was there, and I was also helping cleaning and uh, uh, helping clean the snow from the railway and things like that. And 
how long this went for, I don't exactly remember. But one day, the Germans said, we're going. Everybody, get whatever you have. We're going by train. We're going, out. We're going away. They didn't tell us where we were going. Now, by that time, the date must have been reaching 1944 or something. The, the, the war was coming to an end. And uh, we didn't know where we were going, but it might have been change of location. It might have been even that they wanted to finish us off, never, never mind whether Jews or Poles, because the war was ending. So we were on the train going somewhere with the Germans on the train with us. We passed through a town called Essen. Now, Essen is quite a big industrial town. All of a sudden, the train stops, and we hear noises. Bombs are falling. Planes are flying over our heads. What is going on? The doors of the trains are open, and, and the Germans are running out, saying, Haraus, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. The American bombers are bombing Essen because the war was coming to an end, and that was one of the things they did. And it was absolutely unbelievable and horrendous. So the Germans and us ran out, and I remember putting my face on the grass, covering my head, because they were shooting as well, because the planes came down, machine gunning. There were a lot of dead people. How I survived, I don't know. The, the, the Germans were killed, the Poles were killed. I don't know how long it lasted. The, the the planes flew by. I didn't know where my aunt was. I thought I lost her. It, it was horrendous. And then I hear a voice, Irena, Irena, come on. And there she was. And she said, come on, get up, get up. I'm here, I'm here. You were alive, get up. And we started running. And some Germans were running as well, not necessarily in the same direction. So we ran until we came across a German hot German farmers, and they came out, didn't know who, who the hell it was, and we said, yes, we are Poles, of course not Jews, we are prisoners of war. Uh, we were caught in this bombing uh, uh, incident. Could we please have some water? And the woman of the house said, yes, come in. They gave us some water. They started chatting. My, my aunt spoke very fluent German. And uh, she said, look, if there is anything we can do, you don't have to pay us, we'll do it. And they said, well, okay. And so she helped in the kitchen. I learned how to milk cows. And they were actually very nice to us. How long it lasted, again, I'm not sure. But it came to the point where there was a knock on the door. The, the war by that time was over, finished, and we were confronted with English soldiers who were in the village, and I think they were looking for Germans who were hiding. And we made it very clear very quickly, we're not Germans, we're Poles, and we also made it clear that 
these people who took us in were very decent to us. And it was, it was, it was unbelievable. There was still another one, a story I'm telling you, and I think, and I'm not fantasizing, it actually happened. Um, we were then, um, main events that I remember, the English um, officers said, you can come with us. We have a compound not very far. You can come with us. We said goodbye to the German family, really embracing them. And it was, like, on a human level, I almost felt sorry to leave. Mm. And we went to the compound where we realized there were a lot of uh, officers, English officers. And again, what we could do, because there was nothing much else to do, my aunt went to the kitchen. Uh, I was helping to lay the table. I remember I discovered peanut butter for the first time. I never sold it before. And um, that's where we stayed. Still, as Poles, still alive. Another coincidence, one morning, my aunt is serving breakfast, and there was a, a, a squadron leader in the RAF, English RAF man, sitting there. And she gives him a plate of eggs and bacon for breakfast. He looks at it, he looks at her and says, tell the chef, this is for squadron leader Scott. And he knows I don't eat bacon. And something, some expression came into her face or her hand started to shake that he noticed something and she wasn't aware of what she was doing and said to her, can I have a word with you? As I said, both speaking German. I want to have a word with you afterwards. So... He did, and said, look, I am uh, in the RAF, but my mission is finding and helping surviving Jews. Do you know any? And she nearly fell over, because she was still afraid to declare her true identity. And she said, yes, I trust you. I am Jewish, and this is my niece. Well, if that wasn't an incredible coincidence again, I don't know what, what is. Squadron leader Scott helped me to come to England and arranged all the visas and whatever was necessary and found the little kinder transport which was going to England mm. and he helped him to be one of them and that's how I came to England. He helped my aunt to go to Brussels because her husband's family were there, some surviving Jews, and she wanted to meet them. She didn't speak a word of English, and she thought it would be better for me to go to England, which I wanted to do anyway. And, and we, we, we said, we'll see each other. But that's how I came to England. Was it hard to split from your aunt at that point? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But there was a phase that, you know, there's so much good has happened mm. that we trusted the positive and the good and that we shall see each other. And 
of course, I was very interested because because Sidney Scott said, and you have no school. I mean, your schools, and it's true. I was 12, and, uh, and that was finishing my school. I was totally uneducate, uneducated, and I very much wanted to go to school, and I wanted to learn English. So this is the story so far. Wow. And at what point did you find out what had happened to the rest of your family? Um, that was, that was actually long time before that, and I forgot to mention that, I'm sorry. That was when we were in the factory. Um, yes, we were not absolutely certain, not absolutely certain, but we knew that they were evacuated. And exactly what happened, I found much later. And this is, well, this was long after the war, and I was in England already for some time, and I wanted to know exactly what, where my parents were killed. And I went to a place called the Vienna Library, that had a lot of information about about the war, and and this is why I don't ever generalize. And in the library, there were two women, German women, not Jewish, working there, and they were sort of the age about I don't know forty, thirty. I explained what I wanted, and they said, you know, we are terribly sorry. We don't have much information about Warsaw. We have lots of information about Berlin and other places. And I said, okay, don't worry. I, I lived with it for some time, don't worry. And they said, both of them, if you have time, just sit down and we will see what we can do. They called Yad Vashem. They gave me a cup of coffee, made me comfortable. They called Yad Vashem and about an hour later, they received papers, both, both my parents were killed in Treblinka. What really shocked me, because of course the Germans were very meticulous about the way they wrote everything, there was a month difference, or maybe months or two months before my father and my mother, which meant that they were separated. Those two German women and myself were speechless. We huddled each other, we cried together, and it was real, and I shall never forget it. Wow. And your aunt's kids? That was another big tragedy, more than tragedy. You know, as I, as I started by saying, what is evil? Yes, the kids were with the farmers, as I, as I mentioned before. And by the way, they were both blonde hair, blue eyes. They didn't have any sense of who they were. They, they probably didn't even know that they were Jewish. They really didn't know. 
for a for a time, I don't know how long, they were quite happy on the farm. Now, I shall never know this, whether the farmer had some confrontation with the neighbor, I don't know. It, was, it definitely wasn't the farmers because they loved the kids. But they were denounced by somebody. And a Gestapo. I find it even very difficult to recall. The Gestapo men came <clears throat> and they shot them. And this is why I say that this was the biggest stain on humanity that ever was. Oh, wow. I'm so interested in your journey once you arrived in England. Yes, once I arrived in England, uh, again, Sidney Scott found a place which was a, a hostel run by two German Jewish women, <coughs> very Germanic, by the way, <laughs> and it was a hostel for refugees. And uh, that's where I went and that's where I stayed. Now, when I said uh, they were very Germanic, I meant it in some cultural way. You know, they were very precise, they were very well organized. It's not in a necessarily a bad way. They found a school for me, and, and they said, well, the first thing you have to do is learn the language. And actually, one of them was a teacher of, of, of English. So I started with her, her name was Sophie, I remember, with a very strong German accent. <laughs> so one day I didn't learn English with a German accent. <laughs> but she found the school for me, which was a very excellent school in Reading. It was in Reading, and the school was called Kendrick High School. And um, that's where I learned English. Um, I imagine a very, you being a very scared, lonely, traumatized 16 year old girl. And I'm fascinated where you kind of found that inner strength to start to forge a life out here. Um, I faced death so many times and the surprise that I was still alive kind of gave me strength. Sometimes I felt guilty about it as well, but it gave me strength. And by the way, on the transport, I met a lovely girl from Hungary, Hungarian, her name was Edith, and her family were killed in, during the Holocaust, and she had a very incredible story. So she ended up in the same, in the same hostel. We became very close friends, but to begin with, we didn't even have a language in common. Wow. So we spoke very broken biscuits, German. <laughs> but we were, we were like sisters. We just found one another, and it was a very, very strong bond. Mm. Unfortunately, she died in her 50s. We were very, very close friends. Mm. And I remember waking up one morning saying, Edith, I had a dream, and it was in English. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. Do you call yourself English now? No, of course I'm no. not English. <laughs> <laughs> I am British. British, sorry. I'm British born. Yeah. I wasn't born here, so no. I'm not English. So you don't feel British. I, I, I really, I often think about what is my identity. 
And sometimes I, ha I have problems thinking that one out. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm Jewish. I'm still not very religious. I follow in the footsteps of Spinoza. Mm -hmm. I've been studying Spinoza, who was a very religious Jew, but not he didn't finish as one. Mm -hmm. But his philosophy interests me. But, yeah, it's... I have no identity. I'm a human being. Yeah. With a history. <laughs> yes. Have you been back to Germany, to Poland? Yes, because my aunt decided to go back to Poland. How did you used to feel when you used to go back to Poland? Very mixed. Extremely mixed. You know, in a way, yes, my roots. By that time, um, I... I, I mean, it's it's a place of my birth, but it's a place where I lost my family. It's a, it's very confusing. Mm. It, the language didn't mean very much to me anymore. Yeah. So was it quite challenging to go back there? The only reason why we used to go again and again is to see her. Yeah. She spoke very good German, very good French. She didn't speak a word of English, so, you know, and also we were very curious. We were curious, and we learned an awful lot yeah. during those visits. And how about travelling to Germany? Well, I think I mentioned to you <laughs> that I've learned, I've learned never to generalise. Yes, I, the story was told uh, and, and uh, was brought back to my mind when I met somebody a Jewish woman who said um, she loved to travel, but she said the only place I would never go to is Germany. I can't stand the sound of the language. I'll never speak the language. I, and, I, and I said, be careful. Be careful not to generalize. Yes, culture, the cultures that we are brought in have a tremendous influence on us. There's no question about it. Um, the kind of schooling you get, and, and everything um, that means culture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that each and every individual conforms to that and is like that because of the culture. And I experienced this when I became an actress and I was in a play um, which actually was about the Channel Islands, but it was also about the character I played had a bit of my story in it. So obviously it was about the Second World War as well. And it was a very successful play called Teresa. We performed it in England in many places. We went to Vienna and we were invited to go to Germany. And a friend of mine said, you are going to Germany? And I said, yes, now that I'm in a play and this is different times. Uh, and sure, and history moved on, I'm going to Germany. And it was one of the most incredible experiences I've had because we, we played in Mannheim and uh, Munich and then we finished up in Kassel, Kassel University. And we went there to give a matinee 
And in Castle, the little town, university town, there was a local paper and there was a little bit of my story that I'm in the play and this is my story, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. I didn't even know about this. Um, as we arrived in the university, the chancellor of the university came to meet us. And I have to say, on the first look at him, something in my stomach tightened up. He was very tall, very Teutonic looking, um, stiff looking, but he came and he opened his arms and said to me, you have no idea what this means to me, the fact that you are here. I was in the Hitler Youth during the war. I wore the swastika, I wore the uniform. I was very proud of it, that I was nine, eight or nine years old. And you are here, and that means a lot to me because we have to change. We have to change the world. We have to change all the evil that exists. Tears pouring down his face. People who were surrounding us beginning to cry. And he giving me a big hug, which was genuine, as genuine as anything I have ever met. That was an incredible experience. Yeah. I, I think that's a remarkable story. Um, and I think people can learn from that story because the power of forgiveness in that. And I've often heard it said that we can't heal until we forgive. And I think that story is, yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm interested as well that you, you know, you, you had a very successful career in the arts. Um, you were a successful dancer, mm -hmm. actor. I think you were with the London Contemporary Dance Theatre for 15 years. Um, do you think there was an element of... The fact that you chose acting and dancing, do you think there was an element of escape from reality there for you? A bit of that maybe, but a bit of something else. I mean, I always wanted to act. I mean, I, I love language, I love acting. But when I came here for a long time, I was ashamed to say it. I, I, I didn't say, especially acting, because it meant... First of all, the language was a problem anyway. But I thought maybe, maybe people would think this is a bit too frivolous. Maybe I didn't know enough about it. It's what I wanted to do. It's in my guts I wanted to do it. But I was ashamed to say it. So uh, I'm, I'm not saying I chose dance in, instead. Dance, dance just happened to be inviting me. And I studied it and then joined the company. But, and then slowly I decided, no, I, I missed the language. And when my husband, who worked for UNICEF, um, was moved to New York, um, I went back to college. I, first of all, did a degree in, 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 in the arts, uh, in theater, and started studying acting. And you had a very successful career, is that correct? I, well, I mean, I didn't reach the heights, <laughs> but I did, I did many, I you know, managed to get a small part in the, the book of the RSC. I was in Bristol of Vic, um, and uh, the, the play which I mentioned uh, by Julia Pascal, she also had written another play called The Yiddish Queen Lear. So I was in the Queen Lear, mm. uh, playing the main role, and it was very successful. We played all over the place. So 
yeah, Nottingham Playhouse, you know. I, I did bits and pieces. I never reached heights. I mean, I don't have a famous name or anything like that. <laughs> no. Um, often at this point in the podcast, I ask my guests if they feel they are resilient people. Now, having heard your story, uh, you know, y- you are a resilient person. But do you feel resilient? And have you been able to use that strength <clears throat> in other challenges throughout your life? In my unluckiness and all the tragedies that happen, I was also very lucky. And I think I mentioned that probably at the beginning of this interview, that my childhood was very happy. Mm. Yes, I lost my parents very early on, but the the childhood, the basic childhood, was very happy. And I think the little bit that I know about psychology and so on, that is a basis that you can't, it, it gives you strength. Mm. The other thing is I married very young. I met my husband when I was in, in the college, London College of Dance and Drama. Now that's a long story with that. So I met him when we were very young, um, both of us. And, um, and we, got, we lived in s- six different countries. And people usually say, we have been married for 72 years, three years. And people usually say, what's the secret of the marital longevity? And I say, move around, (laughs) go from country to country, you know, 14 homes, six countries. And the lucky, and yes, we got on extremely well. Mm. I still now, we can actually talk to one another. We don't always agree necessarily. But we both had very strong careers, and that helped an awful lot. So when you say resilient, that gave me resilience. Are there any specific strategies that you've used throughout throughout your life to you know stay, stay strong? So for instance, I know you just told me before that you still exercise for half an hour a day every day. What 15 are, minutes. Sorry, 15 <laughs> minutes. Okay, that's still, that's still brilliant. I, that's, yes. Um, Anything else like that that you know you've used that you think has helped drive you forwards? Well, maybe it sounds a little bit uh, mundane, but good friends, mm-hmm. very important, um, and sometimes also very painful as you get old. You know, sometimes I think old age is a kind of contagion. Contagion. People think it's like an uh, like a disease. Mm-hmm. So you keep away from it. Said, oh, well, you know, maybe she would demand something I can't offer. <laughs> so that happens as well. But side by side with that, again, like with generalization, that you see many different sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so also, I feel there's still time to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I have participated for a long time with U3A, um, University of the Third Age. Um, I'm doing a course now on psychoanalysis, which I find very, very interesting, even though I'm probably the dumbest person there because they're all... (laughs) Well, they're all quite experienced. Uh, I mean, the psychoanalyst herself is, but even the people who participate are very much in that arena, Mm. so they know much more than I. I just learn. So, So that's very important. 
to me. Yeah, so you've kept your brain very active. I'm curious. Yes. I'm not particularly over-clever. I'm, I'm, I'm not being modest about it. But I do have insatiable curiosity. Mm. I do have that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Because, you know, they say that um, babies are born with curiosity. And they're const they're constantly trying to develop through their curiosity, and then at some people at some point some people lose that, mm. and I think it's really important to to maintain that curiosity. Mm. So that's great. Um, I I finish this podcast with a final question. I like to ask my guests if you went back in time to when things were at their hardest, what would you tell yourself? Oh, that's a very difficult question. Because when you are in a position, which is a hard position, you, uh, I don't know to what extent you, you can be rational about it. You are caught in that particular thing, and all you can do is hope that you get out of it somehow. But I don't think that there is a rational or a method or a way of getting out, you're caught in it. Mm. And it depends on your luck. And in my case, all the different coincidences, it depends on that. But I think one is caught, not able to be active about it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to say, if people want to learn more about the Holocaust, um, I would recommend um, the Holocaust Educational Trust, who are Absolutely. an amazing organisation, and they actually helped put us in touch together for today. What I would like to say also about HEG, the Holocaust Educational Trust, which was a great surprise, and for me, it's hope. I met a number of young people they call themselves the ambassadors, and they work for the Holocaust Educational Trust. And a number of them are not Jewish. Mm. And that, for me, especially now, in the, the kind of world where we suffer this increase of anti-Semitism because of Israel, because of you know, all sorts of things, that is incredible hope. I mean, I know somebody, a young woman, who is high up in the office, whose mother actually is a vicar. And she is, she's been to Poland twice. She's visited concentration camps. She visited Auschwitz. Um, she's passionate about her work and help at the Holocaust Educational Trust, yeah. not being Jewish. Yeah, I will put their details in the show notes for anyone that's interested to, to learn more. But Ruth, thank you so, so much for coming to talk to us today. I want to thank you, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> no, I personally, I, I don't think I'll ever forget the experience of being able to interview you today and to hear your story firsthand. You are a remarkable woman. Oh, your strength you. and resilience, it really is an thank inspiration. Um, and this has been an, an uplifting experience for me. I hope that many people will listen to this conversation and that they will also never forget it. Because, you know, what happened during the Holocaust and persecution of any minority groups, it shouldn't ever happen again. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really mean it. Mm. 
We're so excited that the first series of When Life Gives You Lemons is sponsored by Coe's Linen. Coe's supply some of the UK's finest hotels with luxury linens, including bedding, towels and bathrobes. So if you want to feel like you're on holiday or a spa break every day, then I can highly recommend their products. I really love my personalised bathrobe. You know that feeling when you've had a long day at work or a really hard workout? That's when all I want is to have a hot bath, dry myself in my fluffy Coe's towel and then relax on the sofa. And that is when you'll find me in my Coe's bathrobe. Honestly, the most cosy item I've ever owned. All products can be personalised with custom monograms designed by leading interior designer Sophie Patterson. You can find them exclusively online at www.coeslinen.com. Listeners to When Life Gives You Lemons can save 10% with the discount code POD10. You can find a link in the show notes. (laughs) 